We will be in John chapter 5. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 5. As we're continuing this series on the miracles of Jesus, and we see that uh, His miracles were uh, signs, oftentimes in the Gospel of John, He is clearly tying together the miracle of Jesus with the proclamation of who Jesus is. That He is truly God in the flesh. And we see that uh, here in John chapter 5 as well. And so, as you're turning, let's uh, look to the Lord in a time of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for these songs that lift our eyes to Jesus. Thank You for this text that we'll be uh, preaching from today with Your help. And God, I readily admit my need for You. And we need not to hear me, but Lord, that we would hear what You have to say through Your Holy Spirit to us, through Your perfect Word. And we are grateful and thankful for all that You are doing. Lord, I know that a spiritual battle is raging, and Satan is always opposing what You are doing. And Lord, I pray that there would be none of that here today, that You would have complete liberty and that You would rule and reign in this service, and that You would just help us to have the great victory in our lives that You desire for us as a church family, and collectively that we would keep going forward for Christ and in Christ with all that we are. Lord, help us as we look into Your Word today to glean from it what You want to speak to us. And we thank You and we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have the opportunity once a month to go down to the uh, Homeless Day Center that is just being started here in Bristol. And I was able to go on this past Thursday and uh, preach a portion of, of this, not my whole message, but a portion of it there to those folks. And thank God we had a young man that came and gave his life to the Lord. I'm praying for him today. He had to work today and I, it's my prayer that he can get involved in the life of our church and can uh, continue to grow in the Lord. So pray for that young man. His name is Pierce. But here in John chapter number 5, uh, starting in verse 1, and instead of reading it all at once, I'm just going to walk you through verse by verse as we go through this passage together and explain these truths. And we see this miracle that Jesus heals this impotent man at Bethesda in here in John chapter number 5. Verse 1 opens it up and says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now if you look at Leviticus chapter 23, I'm not going to take the time to turn there, but maybe you want to just jot that down and go search this out later. But in Leviticus 23, it says that any time that there is a feast going on, that those days were marked as a Sabbath. It was called in Leviticus 23 a holy convocation. In other words, the laws of the Sabbath applied to that feast week. And so we see that Jesus comes. Now, people have debated, debated, well, which feast is this? Is it this one? Is it that one? That's beside the point. The point is that this is a Sabbath occasion, a hallowed day, a holy convocation in the life of Israel. And in Leviticus 23, if you study it out, God had said whoever breaks that Sabbath is worthy of even death. And it was that extreme that this could be a matter between life and death, how you honored the Sabbath. Now, the religious leaders had tied a whole lot of baggage to that. In other words, 
you know, well, it says not to work, but what constitutes work? How far can I walk on the Sabbath day, for example, and still not commit work? And they had it all spelled out in their rules and regulations. You can walk this far, but if you take one more step, then you're in violation and you ought to be killed. I mean, maybe it wasn't that extreme, but you get the picture. You get the idea. They had dotted every I and crossed every T and figured out every little detail of what constituted work. And so here we are on this occasion. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool. And there's a a gate there, a sheep market, and there is this pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Uh, The word Bethesda means the house of mercy. And here, as John has said in chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Here He is at the sheep gate where those uh, Passover lambs and those sheep would be slain for the sacrificial system. This pool is literally almost right outside the temple complex in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, archaeology has uncovered this very pool that is mentioned here. You can go online. Don't do it right now. I can see everybody pulling out their phones. Bethesda, what does that look like? I should have done that and put it up here on the screen to satisfy everybody's curiosity. But archaeology has uncovered this, and there's pictures of that, and you can uh, check all that archaeology history out. But uh, it is right there near the temple complex in Jerusalem. But Bethesda means the house of mercy. And this sets the stage for this miracle. It's a miracle of God's mercy. It's a miracle of His grace. And that's what I want to emphasize as we go through this passage is Jesus is showing His grace. He's showing His mercy to this man who did not deserve it. It says there are five porches and and what you see is these colonnades, these rows of columns on all four sides around it and one split it right down the middle to make it like two different pools of water. This wasn't like a swimming pool that we think of when we think of pool, but it was like a a stream of water would feed it. It would gather in there. Then there was also an outlet. So the water was constantly rising and going back down depending upon the rainfall and all those kinds of things. And so that's the kind of pool that this was used for ritual purities and different things. As people are coming to worship, they would wash and then they would go up to worship. And so here we see in verse number 3, in these around this colonnade and all four sides and all around this place lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Isn't that a lot like our spiritual condition before we were saved? The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that we were without strength before God. Uh, over in the New Testament, it also tells us that we were blinded in sin by Satan. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of those. And the Bible speaks about this spiritual condition. So many of us today are blinded by Satan, blinded by the gods of this age, the gods of this world, spiritually blind. Can you see this group of people clinging to whatever little hope that they can muster? I hope that I can get better. I hope that I can... I finally make my way into the pool. I hope that I can be healed of this. What little hope that they could muster, they're clinging on to that. In verse 4 it tells us a description, For an angel went down at certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water 
stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease that he had. Uh, in other words, their hope is in a superstitious religious work instead of in God. And religion leads to being self-centered instead of being God-centered. You know, people want their little uh, personal angel to do whatever they want it to do. My guardian angel has got to do whatever I tell it to do. We make it all about us. And this is what they were doing. They were, uh, it was a dog-eat-dog world. Whoever stepped in first was made whole of whatever disease that they had. And so they were pushing each other out of the way, stepping over each other, doing whatever they could to get down into the water first. And it seems like what it's describing is sort of the tide of that pool, rising and lowering. Maybe there's a natural spring and it bubbles up. And when they saw that, they would jump in. It's just uh, almost a superstitious kind of belief. Well, as the story goes on here in verse 5, there was a certain man that was there which had an infirmity 38 years. He had been hanging out in this place for 38 years. Now, I'm 38 years old, and as I look back at my lifetime, it seems like a long lifetime already. But can you imagine staying in this place, uh, wanting to be healed for 38 years? You're calling out for healing. You're trying to beat somebody down there. We're going to read some more about that in a minute. But religion had failed him. Uh, he was helpless. He was hopeless. He couldn't make it on his own. And that's where we were before we came to Christ. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We couldn't make it on our own. As it says in verse 6, Jesus saw him lie, and he knew that he had now been a long time in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? What a powerful question comes from the lips of the Savior, Jesus Christ. This powerful man who is able to do something about this man's case. And I want to point out some things here, what Jesus said. Uh, the first thing that I want you to see and not gloss over, not miss, is that Jesus went to where this man was. Uh, Jesus could have gone anywhere He wanted to. He didn't have to go to this pool of Bethesda. He didn't have to go to this certain place. He could have gone anywhere He wanted to around Jerusalem. But on this day, He chose to go to that specific location. And that is just like Bethesda, and that pool, uh, and that house of mercy. That He came to where we were. Uh, he could have gone anywhere He wanted to. He could have spoken to anybody He wanted to. But He chose to speak to my heart. He chose to speak to your heart and to draw us to Himself. And ever before this man knew who Jesus was, Jesus knew who this man was. And Jesus came to where He was. Jesus came to where you are. Jesus saw Him before He ever saw Jesus, and He does the same thing for you too. Uh, notice this. The man doesn't say anything to Jesus. Jesus initiates the conversation. And that's what Jesus did in my life and in your life if you are a believer. He called to me, and He spoke to me through His Word and convinced me that He is the Lord, that He is God, that I am a sinner and that I need the Savior who is Jesus Christ. And He spoke that into my heart. And I called unto Him for the salvation of my soul. But He initiated that conversation with us just as He did with this man. Jesus asked him this great question, Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? Now, at the surface level, that sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? It sounds like, 
Well, obviously, yeah, who would say no? You know, I've been here for 38 years, hello. You know, of course I want to be made whole. But no, what Jesus is doing is trying to really get him to engage his will. And Jesus does the same thing for us. I love the fact that, as, as uh, Charles Ryrie pointed out in his great study, he said that here Jesus offers complete restoration. He says, do you want to be made whole? He doesn't say, uh, would you like to have a good day today? Would you like next week to be okay? Would you like to be good for about another year and then come back here after that? No, he says, do you want to be made whole? Do you want complete restoration? And that's what Jesus does when He saves our soul. He offers us complete restoration. It's not just for a short time. It's not for a little while. But He makes us whole and complete. But He uses the word want. Do you want to be made whole? That implies that we've got a responsibility. Jesus puts the ball in this man's court. Yes, Jesus initiates the conversation, but He makes the offer. Do you want? And now this man can say yes, Or he can say no to Jesus' offer. And Jesus treats each one of us with that level of respect. Jesus didn't come to that man and grab him up by the arms and said, hey, you're well, you're whole, and didn't even ask him. But Jesus shows each one of us that same level of respect. He created us in His image, and He wants us to receive Him willingly. Uh, Somebody said it this way, forced love is a contradiction of terms. You know, before I got married, I couldn't go down to Walmart or any other store. Or Back then they had the Bristol Mall, but uh, that's long gone. I couldn't go to any of these public places and just find some random woman and say, hey, I choose you, you're going to be my wife, come on, let's go and find a preacher and we're going to get married today. That's forced love. Forced love is a contradiction of terms. And Jesus never forces His love on anyone. He didn't force this miracle on this man without Him initiating His will and saying, yes, I want to be made whole. And when we are saved, we also initiate our will and say, yes, Jesus, I receive that gift of love. But it also, notice verse 7, wilt thou be made whole? Then comes back the answer. The impotent man answered him, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. He exposes, Jesus exposes, human inability apart from God. Apart from God, I could do nothing. Apart from Him doing this miracle for this man, He could not be made whole. Apart from the work that the Holy Spirit does in us, we cannot be saved. And you see here in verse 7, He was focused on the wrong things. First, He was focused on the wrong person. He says, there's no body. I have no man. He was looking around at everybody. No doubt in His mind, He's going back over 38 years of quote-unquote friends that had let Him down. People that He trusted in. Maybe He even paid somebody. Hey, if you help me get to the water, I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars and and I'm going to really owe you. I'll do whatever you want, but just help me get to the water. How many broken relationships had this man had over these 38 years? To this point, he is hopeless. And he's saying, I don't have anybody. He's focused on everybody around him. He's focused horizontally. Instead, he ought to be focused on God vertically. And this man standing in front of him who is the God-man, Christ Jesus, the Savior of the world. 
So first, he was focused on the wrong person. Second, he was focused on the wrong source. He said, I'm looking to the water. I want somebody to help me get down into the water. I need help getting down to the water. Jesus doesn't scold him in the next verse, but He doesn't take him down to the water. There was a different source that Jesus wanted to heal him from. And many times in our lives, we get focused in on the wrong source. We're looking for God to answer our prayers in a specific way, and we're just focused on the water, the water, the water. Jesus, you've got to do it this way, this way, this way. I remember sometimes in my life that I'd sort of given God an ultimatum. Have you ever done that? When you just sort of jot down option one, option two. Now, Jesus, you've got to do it this way, and this is what's got to happen. If it doesn't happen this way, it's not going to happen. Jesus usually comes by and just rips that to shreds and throws it out the window and says, I've got a better way. I've got a different way and a better way for this to happen. And His way is the best way. But we cannot get focused in on the wrong source or we're going to miss the blessing that God has for each one of us. If this man had stayed stuck looking at the water, he would have never been healed. He would have never been made whole. And we've got to find the right source. So first, he was focused on the wrong person. Second, focused on the wrong source. Third, he was focused on the wrong means. I've tried. Lord, I've been trying to get down there. I've been asking people to help me. I've been trying my best. Human effort stops right here and right now. Instead, he should have focused on the grace of God. What Jesus wanted to do for this man that he couldn't do on his own. And that's when we are ready to receive the gift of salvation. When we come to the end of ourselves and we say, I've been trying, I cannot do it. I cannot save myself. I cannot be what I'm supposed to be. You know, I'm afraid people are living an imposter Christianity in some cases today. That they're trying their best to fit into the church. They're trying their best to be a good, quote-unquote, a good Christian but they've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They've never uh, accepted Him as their Savior. And you can't be a Christian without receiving Christ as your Savior. You cannot make it in another way. Uh, There is no amount of human effort. There's no amount of coming to church. There's no amount of reading your Bible. There's no amount of praying that will save you apart from trusting in what Jesus has done. You see, the works flow out of our relationship with God. It's the same with our human relationships. You know, me and Amanda, if I live in fear of her constantly, I know I've used this analogy before, but if I'm just saying, I'm trying to be a husband, I'm trying to be a husband, I'm trying to be a husband, and trying to do husband things, and trying to treat her the right way, I'm going to be living in fear. I'm going to be wandering, walking around on eggshells. Have I said the wrong thing? Have I done the wrong thing? Does she still love me? And is she still going to be mine? But if I know that because on June 6, 2009, I legally became her husband in a binding way on that moment at that time, standing right here on this stage about where I'm standing right this very second, that because of that relationship, I live out of that from my position with her in that relationship. And now I am a husband. It's based on who I am, not on what I'm trying to be. And that's the difference that we have to have. It's the same for salvation. You can try all you want to and never get there. 
It's not about human effort. This man said, I've been trying. I've been trying. I've been trying. But somebody else knocks me out of the way. I just can't seem to make it. I'm just stuck right here. He says, no, you're focused on the wrong way. You've got to focus on the grace of God and what Jesus has already done for us. As people come to our church for the very first time, there's a little booklet that we place in everybody's hands that comes here for the very first time. And that's the whole essence of that little booklet is just explaining what Jesus has done. And all the other religions of the world say, do, perform, and do this, do that if you want to be right with God. Whereas Christianity is all based on no. It's what Jesus has already done to bring you into relationship with Him. And that's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. As we go on in this text, notice in verse 8, Jesus doesn't tell him, well, let's take you down to the water. Or let me help you get up and we'll walk down to the water. No. Jesus just simply tells him in verse 8, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. This is Jesus' mercy and His grace on display as He invites this man to rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Our response to this invitation from Jesus to come out of our sins and put our faith in Him is a difference between life and death. Yes, it's that serious that we've got to take it that seriously. We can repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us on that cross today. And that changes our life for eternity. Notice what he says in verse 9, And immediately the man was made whole. He took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Notice here, when we say yes to Jesus, we are changed immediately. Jesus told him, rise. That's an immediate action, rise. We are changed completely. Take up your bed. You know, he'd never have to come back there again. For 38 years, this is all that he's known. Sitting here in this place and waiting and waiting and waiting and all in hopelessness. And when Jesus stepped in and when Jesus came in, he never had to come back to that place again. Rise, take up your bed. You're not going to need that anymore. Go ahead, get out of here. Go wherever you want to now. And walk. And the word walk has that continual motion to it. And we are not just changed immediately. We're not just changed completely, but we're changed eternally. Keep walking. Keep going with Christ every step of the way. What a marvelous picture this is of the mercy and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what He does not just for this man in physical healing, but what He does for us through spiritual healing that He wants to bring. I want to point out the reaction of the people here of this man and of the crowd in what follows in the next few verses. In verse 10 it says, The Jews therefore... And when John uses this phrase, the Jews, he's talking about these religious leaders. He's talking about sort of the establishment. These people who are living by the rules and the regulations, this religious crowd. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It's the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And when God is working, we can always mark it down, the devil is too. Uh, The religious people come in like a wet blanket on this man. Can you imagine? For 38 years you have sat there, hopeless, helpless, 
and nothing you could do, and then immediately, instantly, you're cured, you're well, you're whole, and somebody comes along and throws a wet blanket on your shoulders. What do you think you're doing walking around with that thing today? That constitutes work, and you're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. Who told you that you could do that? And religion. Notice what religion does, how it blinds the eyes of these people. They don't care about people. They care about tradition. They don't care about relationships. They care about somebody following the rules. In fact, there were some uh, rabbis around this day that said if everybody that is Jewish obeys the rules together on the Sabbath, then the Messiah will come because He'll see how good we are. and He'll see that we're fervent and that we're zealous to do the right things the right way. And that will open up the doorway for the Messiah to come. That's a works-based system that says our human effort can bring about whatever God wants. That's not the gospel of the grace of God at all. They had misunderstood the God of the Bible that they said that they had devoted their lives to. Religion changes our focus off of God and onto our works, quote-unquote, for God. You know, we get so busy working, quote-unquote, for God that we're not really focused on our relationship with God. But as I said before, my life as a husband, the things I do for Amanda, flows out of the relationship that we have, the closeness of our relationship, the communication that we have. If I need to know what she needs, I can just ask her and it flows out of the conversations that we have back and forth. Hey, maybe I ought to do something to encourage her because she's been going through a hard time. Let me get her some flowers. Let me help her with this because she's been so busy taking care of the kids and one's been sick, so maybe I need to help her with laundry. It, what I do flows out of the closeness of the relationship. But all these people cared about is not the relationship, but am I dotting the I's? Am I crossing the T's? How far have I walked today? You know, they got on their Fitbit watch and they're making sure I don't go over X number of miles on my watch today that way that I, I don't break the Sabbath. I don't want to do that. Religion changes your focus off of God and onto your own works, quote-unquote, for God. Works-based systems instead of the grace-based system that God uses. So, what I'm saying is that Satan is the one who uses religion. And he uses religion and religious rules to distract us from where our focus ought to be, to discourage those around us, and to destroy our faith. This man's confidence in Jesus is completely shaken. He doesn't know what to believe. And they're asking him, who touched you? Who told you to do this? And verse 11 through 13, notice what it says. He answered them, well, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. Then they asked him, What man is it that said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not, he knew not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away. In other words, Jesus had concealed himself, a multitude being in that place. He just slipped off into the background, faded into the crowd. And the man says, Well, I don't really know who it was. Who is this healer? I see here two dangerous responses that we see that flows into the next couple of verses. The first is of this man who was healed. He doesn't know who Jesus was. In verse 14, afterward Jesus finds him in the temple. So Jesus goes and finds this man again. And now he understands a little bit about it. 
This healed man had a dangerous response and the religious crowd had a dangerous response. But let's see the warning that comes from Jesus in verse 14 and 15. Jesus says to him after he finds him again in the temple, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now there are some who say that Jesus is talking about the fact that this man could slip back into physical ailment. I don't think that's the sense of this verse. I think what this verse is telling us is that there was a greater spiritual work that this man had not addressed. Not once do we see this man tell Jesus, thank you. Not once do we see this man acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is Master, or Jesus is God. He seems to be totally indifferent to who Jesus is. In other words, he's still self-centered. He's still focused on himself and what he wants. And there's a whole generation of people that are indifferent to the things of God, that could care less about the Lord, that could care less about who Jesus is. What a dangerous place that that is. A lot of the new atheists in their younger generations today are not antagonistic to Christianity. They're just totally indifferent to it. They could care less if there is a God or if there is not a God. And Jesus warns this man of this grave danger. Yes, you got physical healing. And don't we treat God like that? God, as long as you give me what I want and I'm healthy and I'm wealthy and I'm enjoying life, then I don't need you. Many people treat God like this man was treating God. Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Jesus said, there's something much more worse than having to sit there for 38 years. And in that condition for 38 years, there's eternity without God that Jesus is warning this man about. And he is totally indifferent to his soul. And it's my prayer that if any have that attitude today, that God would wake you out of that with the words that Jesus used. There is a worse thing that can happen to you than going through the loss of a loved one, than going through your own physical health going down. There's so much worse that can happen to you beyond this life. Don't be like this man who was physically healed, but there's no record of his spiritual Healing. And the spiritual is what Jesus wanted him to see most of all. And he totally missed it. And we see that as it goes on in the next verse, verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus. He doesn't agree with Jesus. He doesn't repent. He doesn't thank Jesus. He doesn't do anything. He just goes right to those Jewish leaders and says, okay, I just met him again. It's that man over there, Jesus, that did these things that He's the one that healed me. He's the one, and notice what it says in verse 15, the man departed, told the Jews it was Jesus that had made him whole. Therefore the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay Him because He had done these things on the Sabbath day. These Jewish leaders were antagonistic to Jesus. They were rejecting Him because He did this on the Sabbath day. We're going to speak some more about that. Here in verse 17, Jesus begins to explain Himself. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. In other words, Jesus is saying, Hey, the Father is always working. If God took a day off from doing good, we'd all die. The earth would stop spinning on its axis. The sun and the moon would not come up. God is in control of all these things. And He says, I am doing good. And so what Jesus is telling them is, 
Not that it's okay for me to work, but He's saying, I am more than just a mere man. I am God. And He's making a claim to be God. These people understood that in no uncertain terms. Because notice what they do in verse 18 here. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill Him. It was before because not only had He broken the Sabbath, but now they understand His statement. But said also that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. They understood He's claiming to be God right here and right now. And remember, the whole point of these miracles are to confirm a messenger that is sent from God. And Jesus is pointing back to this and saying, I did this good work on the Sabbath day on purpose to show you that I am sent from the Father. That I am God in the flesh. As it says in John chapter number 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness. And the darkness comprehended it not. He says, I am that God. I am that Word speaking to you today. One commentator I read after put it very good and summarized all this. And I want to read just a portion of what he wrote. He says that they're all on the same page and there's an agreement between the rabbis and Jesus. They recognize the sense of God's constant working in the world and they assume that God continues to work on the Sabbath or the world itself would collapse. Yet the issue for the rabbis revolves around the fact that the humans are not God and therefore must not try to act like God. But here is the point that John is making. The working of Jesus is precisely John's word that he's making. The point he's making, Jesus is the Son of God and therefore is the representative of God. So if God can continue to work positively in creation on the Sabbath and not totally rest, and if one can recognize that the works of Jesus are the works of God, then the question follows, why are not the works of Jesus on the Sabbath legitimate? And that's where the battle lines were drawn. And as Jesus said in verse 17, calling God His Father, He is not just saying, yes, we are all God's children. No, He's saying that I am sent from God. They saw that He was making Himself equal with God, as it said in verse 18. Jesus' claim would violate their understanding of monotheism and would surely have reminded them of the serpent's temptation to be like God in Genesis 3.5. Can you hear their attitude? Oh, this is just like the devil working back in the Garden of Eden trying to be like God. Here's another man trying to be like God. And so such a claim would undoubtedly be categorized by these rabbis as sinning with God in a blasphemous way. He says, this is exactly the claim of Jesus that unless this claim is true, the only way for Jesus to not be breaking and violating the Sabbath is if He is God in the flesh. And that is exactly what He is claiming to be. And that's exactly what the early church says that He is. Jesus is not claiming to take the place of God. He's not claiming to be an alternative to God. And that's what the Jews thought. He's making Himself equal to God. No. 
as this author said, what Jesus, as the one and only Son of God, claimed to be was to be sent by God on a mission for God, doing the works of God, obedient to God, bringing glory to God. That is not the role of one who displaces God, but of one who is a representative of God. He is the Word made flesh and given to us. And we see in this the Lord and the God of all heaven and earth on display for us, doing this great and mighty miracle that only God can do. I want to just read verses 19 to 24. And the rest of the chapter unfolds. We don't have time to get into that. That's beyond the scope of where I'm going today with this message. But it's a wonderful study. As Jesus unfolds His Sonship, His relationship with the Father. But He has some very pointed words. And I just want to read verses 19 to 24 as we close. And Jesus answered them when they made this accusation. Verily, verily, truly, truly. In other words, sit up and listen and pay attention to what I'm about to say. I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He seeth the Father do. For what things soever He doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth Him all things that Himself doeth, and He will show Him greater works than these, that you may marvel." Hey, Jesus is saying, this is just getting started. There's so much greater that is to come. I believe that Jesus has the cross in His mind here. The atonement of the sins of all the world. Greater works than these are coming. Just hold on to your seats and watch what's about to come, guys. Verse 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, makes them alive, even so the Son quickens, makes alive whom He will. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father, which has sent Him. Verily, verily. Again, sit up and pay attention. Notice what He's about to say. Verily, verily. Truly, truly. I say unto you, He that heareth My word, and believeth on Him that sent Me, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And that was the point of His miracle that He performed, that He is showing the grace of God that leads us to salvation. And if you are here and you have not passed from death to life, you can do that today. And let's close our bow our heads and close our eyes for a time of prayer and invitation. Our Heavenly Father, I thank You and I praise You for this Word. I thank You that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm so grateful for Jesus as He says, He that hears My Word and believes on Him that sent Me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I thank You, Lord, for the day that You spoke to my heart And You revealed to me that I was a sinner. That I was blind in my sins. I think of amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the reality that You do for all of us. You open our spiritual eyes to the understanding of who You are. And I just praise You in this place today, Lord, 
And I thank You for how You spoke to my heart one day and called me to uh, Yourself, away from my sin and to the Savior. Thank You for the day that You saved my soul. Lord, I pray if there's any here today uh, that maybe they've been putting their faith and trust in their works. Maybe they're putting their faith and trust in the fact that they come to church or that they read their Bible or that they pray and, and they're all focused on their accomplishments, their hard work, their human effort instead of what Jesus has done for them. It's only by believing in what Jesus has done that passes us from death unto life. No amount of our works will ever make us right with You. Oh Lord, I pray that if any are trusting in their works today, that You would reveal that to them so clearly. Let them call upon You as their Lord and Savior this very day. And Lord, for those of us who have uh, received You as our Savior, let us praise You. Let us glorify You. Lord, help us not to get stuck in religion. Help us not to be a wet blanket on somebody's shoulders who gets right with You. But let us be an encourager. Let us point them to Jesus. Uh, Let us be revived in our sense of all that Jesus has done for us. And I think of that wonderful hymn of the faith, Revive us again. Fill each heart with Thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Hallelujah, Amen. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Revive us again. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who has shown us our sin and has cleansed every stain. Lord, again we say, Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Hallelujah, Amen. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Revive us again. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and Amen. I'm going to ask Pastor Brad to come and extend the invitation as the Lord is speaking to His heart about. Pastor Josh, let's stand to our feet if you would please. Are you, have you just been trying or are you trusting? Trying, 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 trying to get to the water, trying to get there, trying to do this, our trust in Jesus, just as you are. They're going to sing a verse for us here. You can use your pew as your altar or come here in the altar in the front and just spend some time in prayer and say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm through trying. I'm trusting now. I give my life to Thee. I, tr- I throw this problem in Your arms. I give it all to You, Lord. I'm not trying, I'm trusting, just as we are. As they sing, why don't you do business with the Lord? Just as greatest peace in all the world that you'll ever have is when you have let go and let God. It's when you've turned loose 
if that's your life where you have tried to control things and it's ended up a mess, you've tried to choose your future and it's ended up a mess, and God says, why don't you just trust me? Why don't you first of all give me yourself? Realize I'm the Savior. I'll save you. I'm the one that does the work. I do that work. And then let him have everything. Open up your heart and say, Lord, go through every room in my heart. Just go in there. Clean it all out. Sit on the throne. Get in my heart, Lord, and do what you want to do. It's your heart now. It belongs to you. Just as I am. One more verse, girls, if you would, please. Without one plea. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blood to Thee, whose blood can cleanse Father in heaven, you know every one of our hearts and you know how you're working in each one. Father, we don't do the work of the Holy Spirit. No one attempts to here in our church. I don't want to ever try to do that. We do believe the sweet Holy Spirit works through his word every time that the word is sung and preached as it has been today. And I ask you, Father, to help everyone that's either witnessed the service right here this morning and heard the message or they have been listening distantly through our Facebook or our website that everyone would just open up their hearts and say Lord here's everything here's it all uh, I, I'm, I'm tired of trying to get to the water like this cripple did I want you in there I want you to take over and I surrender it all to thee and Father, when we do that, what great peace floods our soul because you, the Prince of Peace, comes to live in us. You handle the circumstances, the situations, and we give that to thee as well. Thank you, Lord, for being the true and living God as was so displayed this morning in John chapter number 5. Thank you for being the very Word of God himself and living today in us who are believers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Thank you, church. You've been so attentive this morning. We appreciate it so much. Now, uh, the Lord...